Please open your Bibles to Psalm 80 tonight. Again, if you'll listen uh, now to this psalm, it is for the choir director, set to El Shoshonanim Eduth, a psalm of Asaph. O give ear, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your power and come to save us. O God, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with the prayer of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears and you have made them to drink tears in large measure. You make us an object of contention to our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. O God of hosts, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. You removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it, and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadow, and the cedars of God with its boughs. It was sending out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why have you broken down its hedges, so that all who pass that way pick its fruit? A boar from the forest eats eats it away, and whatever moves in the field feeds on it. O God of hosts, turn again now, we beseech you. Look down from heaven and see and take care of this vine. Even the shoot which your right hand has planted and on the sun whom you have strengthened for yourself, it is burned with fire, it is cut down, they perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. O Lord God of hosts, restore us, cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. This is the Lord's word. Would you bow with me as we seek the Lord's blessing? Father, again, we thank you for this evening. Thank you for this body of believers. And Father, as we um, come to you now, we come and ask for your blessing upon this word. As it is read, now as it is preached, we pray that you would bless the servant and that you would bless these, your people, those who sit in this building and those who join from afar. We ask, Father, that you would give us understanding of these things and that we would come to see you, Lord, for who you are and that we would move away from this idea of approaching you as consumers, as those who treat you as some machine. We ask, Father, that you would um, bless us now, that you would look upon us, that you would shine upon us, and that you would turn your face and be favorable once again to your people. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I do want to thank you for coming uh, faithfully on Sunday evenings and on Wednesday evenings. Um, I understand that in God's providence, the weather doesn't cooperate so often, and schedules don't permit us to do things that we would otherwise be doing. Uh, But it is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful blessing. I'm sure you remember a day when you would go to church and Sunday evenings were full. I'm sure you older people remember prayer meetings being full and people crying out to the Lord. Um, Something's happened. Something has happened. Uh, Our sister Barbara will routinely remind me that she was in Korea and when she came back from Korea, she says, I knew something had bad had happened in our country because stores were now open on the Lord's Day when prior to me going to Korea, she said they weren't. 
Something's happened. What is the beginning step of the healing of the apathy in the Church of Christ? Where does a newfound interest in the old things of the Lord begin? Can those things ever be gotten back to? Um, What is it that keeps us from becoming or being unnecessarily derided by the world? What is it that will keep us from losing the salt of our witness in this world if it's not already too late? Are we not in the condition we are in largely because in the church we have ceased to seek the Lord? I'm not chiding you who are sitting here tonight because I know that the Lord always has a remnant and I know that the Lord's church will always be upon the earth. But we see it wax and wane throughout history. Sometimes the church is right out there in front and and you see it and it's thriving and at other times especially in our country it seems to to be to me anyways that the church has become anemic and it's become weak and it's it's lost its way we we look to revitalize the church by uh, bringing about conferences and programs not that I'm against conferences per se but we, we oftentimes tend to gimmickry to entice people into the church and we're not seeing a thriving uh, body of believers Psalm 80 is a prayer it's a prayer put to a song for revival it is a prayer for God's people to seek the blessing of God's countenance upon them I'm sure you've heard this past week or two about the revivals so called revivals in Asbury University Apparently, the revival has taken place, is, is spread to Samford University in Alabama, and I thought that I had heard of a third place where they said revival was breaking out, um, and I thought it was in Ohio somewhere. Um, <clears throat> what does it, uh, a, a revival look like? I've always been very skeptical of these things uh, because oftentimes revival seems to take the 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 form of uh, excitement and lots of emotion and 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 um, singing and, and and all these great uh, and, and fantastic uh, experiences that people are having. I'm not here to make a judgment on what's taking place. I don't know. I, I don't know. I know what the true marks of a revival are. And if you think of a, what a conversion is, when a person is regenerate. What kinds of things come about in that person's life? Just ask yourself that. Uh, a hatred of sin, a repentance from sin, a looking to Jesus Christ, a rejoicing in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, a belief in the gospel, a new life sets out. And, and so I would say revival is that on a grand scale. It's the difference between, if you'll pardon the, the analogy, it's the difference between a breeze and a hurricane. <laughs> you see you see a lot of the right things happening with a lot of people. It's a mark, a movement of the spirit. Revivals themselves are not something that can be orchestrated or scheduled, but it is something which the Christian, I would say, it's a good thing to pray for. In fact, if you look here, verse 18, he says, Then we shall not turn back from you. Revive us, and we will call upon your name. It's a prayer for revival. 
something has happened. Something that once was good has grown dim. Something that once was good has turned sour, has turned bad. And now we're suffering because of it. And if you just think of the church, you think of what has gone on. We used to be something was happening. And how many of you have ever wondered, does the spirit of God still work in the United States? And I would argue he does. But we don't see it quite on the scale we have in in times past. For instance, the 1730s with the first great awakening that took place. Again, and and Edwards was the one who brought this out, um, the discerning marks of of what a a revival is. He talked about there was crying and, and all sorts of emotion. He goes, these are not necessarily the marks of revival. Now, Bear in mind, if if you are repenting, if you're broken over your sin, I would expect that there would be tears of mourning for over sin, of rejoicing for forgiveness. These are good things. You can't help but be touched. But the emotion in itself without a heart that is changed and brought to the Lord, um, that's revival is, is being brought to the Lord, and it's resting in Christ and serving him. We see this in this prayer. Uh, again, Psalm 80 teaches us to cry to the Lord for his blessing, for his blessing to be upon his people, to implore the God of hosts to restore us, to cause his face to shine upon us that we may be saved, that is saved from external evils, uh, liberated and set free. The occasion of the psalm, it appears to have been written in the last days of the northern kingdom. As you recall, <clears throat> Israel asked for a king. They got Saul, then they got David, then they got Solomon. And after Solomon, the nation was split in half, not even an equal half. (laughs) You had Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, who said, and it was because of this, my father ruled you. He goes, my pinky is like my father's thigh. You think he was hard? (laughs) You haven't seen anything yet. And the Lord did this because he was taking the, the nation, the kingdom away. So he was divided. It was divided between um, Rehoboam, who was the king of the southern kingdom, the son of Solomon, with its true tribes, Benjamin and Judah, and Jeroboam, uh, because uh, rather he became the king of the northern kingdom, which consisted of the other ten tribes. Jeroboam, you recall, was a wicked king. He set up golden calves to worship in the north, both in the cities of Dan and Bethel, And he did so to keep the Israelites from going back to Jerusalem to the temple. He did so because he was afraid that if they went back to Jerusalem, they would leave the northern kingdom and move south, thus reunifying the kingdom. Jeroboam was bad, but they got a lot worse. The kings of of the north were, were worse. God here is using a foreign nation, the Assyrians, as a rod of discipline upon the northern kingdom you know the lord does that sometimes he'll use another nation to chastise a people to use them as a rod of discipline the lord said that he would do this in deuteronomy chapter 28 and he sent their enemies against them the theme of the psalm is restore us we see this in verses 3 7 and 19 again written by asaph the choir director to be sung by the temple singers One commentator said this, It reveals how deep the shock was felt in Jerusalem at the sweeping away of almost the whole of Israel, uh, ten tribes out of the twelve, 
leaving the little realm of Judah exposed now on the north to a new Assyrian province instead of to its sister kingdom of Israel. This psalm reveals distress at the wreck of so much promise in the breakup of the old family. It is the cry of the southern kingdom for the northern kingdom for God to heal his people. Have you noticed how essential true worship of God is to keeping us centered where we ought to be? That without his true worship, we wander and are like shooting stars. I was talking to another minister who argued this very point. In fact, he said that the reason the nation, our nation, is suffering is not because the nation is wicked. He says it's because the church has gone after other gods and we've worshipped other gods. He says, just consider, and I think he's got a point here to an extent, how the church, you think about what's considered good worship these days. It's what makes the, the audience feel good. It's, in his term, Baalism. It's, it's about emotion. It's about eliciting emotion from people to create for them an experience rather than holding up the God of the Bible to people. If you think, take what he has said and run it past what you hear about other churches, I think you would have to say he's, he's on to something. Worship, biblical worship, keeps us focused on who the Lord is. It keeps our eyes focused upon him. The moment we get away from the scriptures, the moment we start inventing ways that make us feel good, is the moment we start to distance and run from the Lord. And the net result is this, that we become a people of the world because we're directing worship by our flesh and not by the word of God. This psalm teaches us for what we should be praying. When the church is in decline as we see it, when she has left her first love, it teaches us how we ought to pray when we are facing the consequences of sin that we feel. Second Chronicles 7.14, a verse you know well, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. It's applicable to the church today as we are prone to the same type of apostasy that the church of the Old Testament was prone to. We are prone to leave the Lord, to go after the lovers of this world, courting its ideas, its values, its entertainments and pleasures, and abandoning the one who has loved his bride, the church. When you see the ravages of Satan, the world and the flesh on the church, it is time we pray for revival. As the Lord, it would appear, is withdrawing his hand of mercy from the church. And in case you think that might be an overstatement, um, I would encourage you to go back and read Revelation 2 and and 3. Because the Lord does threaten to remove the lampstand from those churches because of their sin. So, So he will always have a church on this earth, but he will not necessarily always have a church on the corner of First and Market. Do you see this? And, and this is where I think we have to always be very careful uh, as, as believers not to take for granted the blessings of the Lord 
as though it is something automatic to us. Listen to verses 1 and 3 again. O give ear, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your power and come to save us. O God, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. They implore the Lord here for rescue. They implore him for rescue. Restore us, cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. The cry is addressed to the shepherd of Israel, a term usually assigned to a king, but here given to the Lord, the one who leads or led Joseph like a flock in establishing his people. You who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. Remember the Ark of the Covenant. Remember the lid on the Ark of the Covenant, the cherubim whose wings touch in the middle, forming a seat for the Almighty. The cherubim are guardians of holiness and agents of judgment. In fact, if you turn over to Psalm 18, listen to this passage. It's really quite a powerful picture. It's Psalm 18, verses 7 through 15. Then the earth shook and quaked, and the foundations of the mountains were trembling and were shaken because he was angry, speaking of the Lord. Smoke went up out of his nostrils, and fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with thick darkness beneath his feet. Now listen, he rode upon a cherub and flew, and he sped upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his hiding place, his canopy around him, darkness of waters, thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him passed his thick clouds, hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered them, and lightning flashes in abundance and routed them. Then the channels of water appeared, and the foundation of the world, the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. Again, he says here, David says of the Lord that he rode upon a cherub and flew, and he sped upon the wings of the wind. Here, the the cherubim are the guardians of holiness and agents of judgment, and they call upon this God, our mighty God, to shine forth in brilliance. The idea, again, of shine now on us, uh, uh, an allusion to the priestly benediction that I usually recite every Sunday morning. The psalmist is calling upon God to reveal his gracious presence to them. Again, the picture is that at this point, the northern kingdom has been handed over to their enemies. They are suffering because of sin, and the Lord has withdrawn his grace from him, from them. And they, they are in the southern kingdom, they are crying out, Lord, please, would you please turn back upon us? Look upon them with favor, with blessing. Come and and shine your face of grace upon them. They go on to say, stir up your power and come to save us. As a shepherd delivering his flock, as a warrior delivering his people, like in the days gone by when the ark was carried before these three tribes, Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, the arks went out, then those three tribes went, they went to go conquer the land. Lord, would you do it again? Would you do it again? Would you go before us? Would you conquer the enemy? Would you set us free? Would you look upon us with your favor and with your grace? They call upon the Lord to show up 
and to deliver them. My friends, there is no one who can deliver the Lord's people but the Lord. That is a fact. There is no one who can remove her shame and her scorn in the world but the Lord. And here in this psalm, they are crying to the Lord. They are not crying to kings. They are not crying to princes. We do not cry to presidents, nor even to politicians. They can't remove the shame of the church. They can't turn our hearts back. Now, we fight for for godly legislation. We fight that we have the ability to speak. But what's to be done with the hearts of the people in the church who whore after the things of the world? How do we do that? How do we fight for that kind of thing? We, We want to see... Lord, your church is full. Not just full because it's mandatory, full because they get to go to church. We want to see, Bill has said it in in prayer, we want to see not one circle, but two circles of people, right, sitting here praying. We want to see Sunday night not being 16 people. We want it to be 60 people or 120 people. We want them sitting out there and sitting out here with the windows up and people crying, please continue to preach for another seven hours. (laughs) I said that to make you wake up. But we want that kind of thing. No one else can do this but the Lord. Um, We dare not look to athletes or to uh, actors or actresses. We call upon the Lord, and we call upon the Lord alone. The church's only hope is found in her Lord, and the Lord's people must call upon him for deliverance. And here they cry to the Lord because of their trials. This is the design of trials, isn't it? It's to make us come back to the Lord. I've thought it a very interesting thing. We've been praying for revival a very long time. And the more it seems I pray for revival, and of course I am not the only one. I know many of you pray for revival for the Lord's church, and I know there are many brothers praying faithfully in pulpits across this land. And I do believe there are a fair amount of people who have not bowed uh, the knee to Baal. Um, I'm sure they're praying for revival, and it seems like the harder we pray for revival, the worse the nation's getting. Have you noticed that? And I think maybe, maybe the Lord is answering that prayer. Maybe as the nation gets worse, people will start to come to the end of their idols. Maybe as times get harder, what happens to the people? We fall on our knees and we become earnest about seeking the Lord and seeing the the urgency and the necessity of the Lord. They cried to the Lord because of their trials. Israel was made miserable. Listen to verses 4 through 6. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with the prayer of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears, and you have made them to drink tears in large measure. You make us an object of contention to our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. O God of hosts, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. Instead of looking upon his people with blessing, the Lord is angry with them. He smokes against them, literally. He's fuming against them um, because of their apostasies, because of their false and syncretistic worship, 
because of their mocking of the things of God, because of their sins against their neighbors, because of their trust in foreign nations for help instead of looking to the Lord. He has fed them with the bread of tears and has made them to drink tears in large measure, which is something a court to a kin. The idea being that um, akin rather to a court, uh, which tells you that there's a whole lot of crying going on. They cry and suffer misery personally. They are also an object of scorn amongst the enemies. The, the great nation has fallen. The Gentiles, the nations around them mock the church because of her silliness. Again, the American gospel that we watched in Sunday school a few weeks back. You see these sorts of things and it's no wonder the nations mock at what goes on in the church. Consider where Israel came from and what the Lord had done. Verses 8 through 13. You removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadow and the cedars of God with its boughs. It was sending out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why have you broken down its hedges so that all who pass that way pick its fruit? A boar from the forest eats it away and whatever moves in the field feeds on it. The vine is Israel. God with a mighty hand had delivered Israel out of Egypt. Uh, scholars estimate it was probably near 2 million people had come out of Egypt. And the Lord transplanted them in the land of Canaan, just as he had promised Abraham. With might, he defeated Israel's enemies and cleared them out and gave them a land flowing with milk and honey. The vine took deep root and it filled the land. Did you notice how it describes it? The land, the, the plant, the vine that grows, goes all the way from the Mediterranean Sea over to the river Euphrates, the great river. That's in fulfillment of the promise that God had made to Abraham. They had that land. The vine took deep root and it filled the lands. The mountains were covered with its shadow and the cedars of God with its boughs. It was sending out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. God gave it this land. It, he protected it from its enemies, provided all that they needed. The picture is that Israel had flourished. They were flourishing. They were in their heyday. This plant is huge. It's casting shadows. It's sprawling in every direction. What happened? Why have you broken down its hedges so that all who pass that way pick its fruit? A boar from the forest eats it away, and whatever moves in it in the field feeds on it. God had removed his protection from the northern kingdom so that the Assyrians got into the kingdom like a, like a pig running through a vegetable garden. Beloved, this is the judgment on the people of God. The Lord's people, when times are good, become complacent and think that God has got to take care of us. We have an automatic right to blessing and peace from the Lord. Eli's sons did it. We read this several weeks back. They thought that being priests made them secure in their positions, so they indulged their flesh. The Jews thought this in the days of the Lord Jesus, that being descendants of Abraham, they had an automatic right to heaven, to blessing. And Jesus told them to do the deeds of Abraham. Well, what are the deeds of Abraham? Believe God. Trust God. Believe in his son. 
This is the blessing of God. This is the work that God calls us to. To trust him. To love him. When we do these things, we take for granted the Lord's loving protection, his provision, and his salvation. We stop treating God as our creator and savior and treat him in a mechanical fashion as though he was a blessing vendor. Now think of the church. Think of the church, especially in, in, in the United States in light of this psalm. We go back to about 30 A.D. There are 12 fishermen and tax collectors. At the time of the Lord's ascension, there were 120 people in an upper room. We are told of the outpouring of the Spirit. The gospel of the kingdom spread like wildfire. First 3,000, then an additional 5,000. Eventually it's 20-some thousand, scholars say. Within 300 short years, uh, the Roman Empire, then it's Europe, then the United States. We see the gospel crossing the globe, crossing the world. We have the split of the Eastern and Western Church. And in the Western Church, we, we um, read of the Reformation, of which many of you are familiar. And we stand within this glorious tradition. Men like Calvin and Martin Luther and Zwingli. Men who suffered um, because they preached the gospel faithfully. And here we are, a little group of people in the middle of Wyoming who get to experience the doctrines of grace and hear the scriptures preached and read. What wonderful blessings we've had. How are we supposed to respond to such grace? What is the church in the United States doing because of what we've been given? Are we advancing Christ's gospel? Are we using our resources for his kingdom? Are we hungering and thirsting after righteousness? Are we daily striving to conform to the Lord and the things he says, not because we have to, but because we get to, because we've been saved, because we have been blessed? Are we broken towards him, broken over sin? Are we tender in our obedience to the Lord? Are we, uh, again, um, desiring the things that he has put forward or or have we become complacent and idle and consumed once again with the things of this world? What's the condition of the church in the United States? What's our condition? Do we respond as those who are grateful recipients of the most wonderful gift ever given to man? Or do we use it in a way to secure and serve our own flesh. Will the Lord, does the Lord tolerate this? Does he tolerate this? My friends, he doesn't. He will not be mocked and he will be glorified and a people will be brought to sit around his table and be his forever. The question is, do you imagine there will be many Americans there around that table? Israel turned her back on the Lord and the Lord gave her over to her idols. If the church in the United States turns its back on the Lord, I don't doubt for a second the Lord will give us over to our idols 
And again, hearkening back to the American Gospel documentary we watched, it would seem to me that he's doing that when you see that our idolatry of money and greed becomes the mix of religion that seems to be sweeping this land. I think it's a judgment on us. It's not a good thing. It's a judgment because the church has left its first love. Has the church gone this direction? Does the church have the glory it once did in this nation? If we lose our saltiness, how will we again be made salty? We're given here in these last few verses um, this example. What ought we to be doing? What ought you to be doing? What ought we to be doing as a congregation in days like this where it would appear the Lord is withdrawing his grace from the church in the United States? Again, I'm not saying he's withdrawing salvation from his chosen, his people. I'm not saying that. But he does withdraw his grace and he hands us over And you see here the Lord's people in the Old Testament turning their back on the Lord, and he gives them the bread of tears, their suffering. And we see this happening. Listen to verses 14 through 19 as we uh, approach this close. O God of hosts, turn again now, we beseech you, look down from heaven and see and take care of this vine. Even the shoot which your right hand has planted and on the son whom you have strengthened for yourself. It is burned with fire, it is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. O Lord God of hosts, restore us. Cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. Again, the psalm recognizes and teaches us that the only place where health and vitality come, um, come from is from the Lord, and the Lord's people must seek his face and call upon him to shine upon us. I know of no better thing that we can do. Word and sacrament, word and prayer, bringing our requests to the Lord and praying earnestly for the Lord's church, not just this church, but for the Lord's church throughout this nation. We call upon the Lord to look down from heaven and see and to take care of this vine, take care of his people. It was God who blessed his people and took them from nothing and made them great. It is God alone who can heal his church and make her great as far as her witness and in all other aspects. He says, let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. A cry here to hold on to your people, the vine you once planted. For them, it is a cry, and scholars are not sure of this, it is either a cry for Messiah or for Israel's king. The idea is is that they had strayed, now bring us back. Even, even if it's the descent and line of Jeroboam, bring him back. Bring back your people again to you. They cry again either for the Messiah or for Israel's king. For us, we understand it as the Messiah, a realized prayer. And yet, what should our prayer be? Lord, shine upon us with your presence and make us to know your presence and turn us once again to yourself. 
all the things that churches get caught up in, all the programs, all of the nutsiness that we see going on, what is the thing that is to bless the church? It is to know Jesus Christ, and it is to know him and his salvation. It is to know what he has done for us and what he requires of us and for us to walk faithfully in that way. That's what a prayer for revival is. Show us yourself, Lord, and bring us back to you and help us to walk in the ways that you've commanded. Then, then we shall not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. My friends, we need once again in the church to come back to Jesus Christ as God's glorious son. Only Jesus Christ can keep us from turning away from him. Would you join me in crying to the Lord to shine upon us? Will you join me even after tonight in praying that the Lord will revive his church? Let's pray. We thank you, Father, again for this evening and thank you for your word and for this psalm. A people who had tasted such goodness from your hand and then who rebelled against this this kindness, this grace, and went after the world. Father, we see so many parallels in the American church of how we have tasted of so much kindness, so much grace from your hand, and how we have gone after the world. Lord, would you forgive us, please? Would you hear our prayers even tonight? And would you turn your face towards us, your grace? Would you, Lord, please shine upon us and bless us that this place would be full and your churches across this land would be full of those who want to serve and love the Lord Jesus and who want to rest in him. We pray that you would reform and purify your church. We pray, Lord, that charlatans and doctors of deceit would be removed from their pulpits in this land. And we pray that the gospel of the Lord Jesus, the work that he has accomplished on behalf of his people, would be heralded faithfully. We pray that once again the church would shine brightly, that it would be full of salt and witness in this world, and that Uh, The world would deride us not because we're silly, but because we are followers of the one true God. Thank you again for this privilege to be your people and to be your worshipers. Bless us now as we would go into the world that we might serve you faithfully. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.